Diakonasa Cops Calling is sponsored by Luciano's Woodworking. Luciano's Woodworking is owned and operated by Carlos Luciano Jr., and he works with each of his customers to create hand-carved wooden plaques, signs, wall hangings, and more. Currently, he is working on a wall hanging for Diakonasa Cops Calling, and I am super excited to see it once it's completed. He's worked with me to meet the style, the colors, the print, and the frame I want for this project. You can see his talented work. Just check out Luciano's Woodworking on Facebook and Instagram. Whether you want a welcome sign for your home, a plaque to display challenge coins, a hand-carved piece of your favorite sports team, a personalized stovetop cover, retirement plaques for those in the military or in law enforcement, wall art for rooms in your house, or any other similar project, he can do it. Carlos is a full-time police officer, a husband, and a father, but he enjoys kicking up the dust with this side hobby. He's a busy guy, but you will not be disappointed as you patiently wait for him to complete your project. So check out Luciano's Woodworking right now on Facebook and Instagram. See his work, share his work, share him on social media, and then let him know what project you'd like him to start for you. This podcast is for grown-ups only. Some of the content may not be appropriate for little ears like mine. So Zoe International is a uh, 5013C. It's a nonprofit. It's also a ministry. Uh, we focus on um, intervening uh, and helping children that are enslaved in child in child sex trafficking. Well, child trafficking in general. Not to get too graphic, but the um, uh, the weapons used were guns, knives, ball peen hammers. Welcome to Diakonasa Cops Calling. I'm Anthony Weaver, and on this episode, episode 24, you're going to hear part one with retired detective Brad Ortenzi. If this name sounds familiar, that's because he was also a past Cue the Dip winner. It was great to sit down with him, and I think you'll really enjoy listening to him about his career in law enforcement and what he's doing right now. Right off the top, I want to give you a quick update on last week's Cue the Dip winner, that being Officer Michael Sularid. Last Wednesday, he was released from the hospital. If you recall, he was stabbed multiple times and showing a great deal of fortitude, uh, was able to fight through these injuries, shooting and killing uh, his assailant in defense of his life and the life of others. I'm thankful that he is okay and back home, and I hope he continues to recover and is able to get back to 100%. Speaking of 100%, I continue to be blown away by the support and kind comments I get from many of you. Listen, I believe I was called to do this podcast, and I will continue to do it as long as I feel the Lord wants me to. Uh, But the support of so many of you is truly humbling and encouraging every single week. In the same vein, I have some brand new patrons I want to give a shout out to. They are the Hence family and Randy and Loretta Whitmer. I really appreciate both these families who have been supportive of me in many ways, even before becoming patrons. I also want to give a shout out to Luciano's Woodworking. He recently completed the Diakonasa Cops Calling plaque, and this past week I was able to pick it up. It looks awesome. I did put some pictures of it up on Facebook, and I'm hoping to get it hung up on the wall here in my studio very soon and get some pictures of that out on Facebook also. I'll always encourage you to go to diakonasacc.podbean.com and check out the website. 
and the link to the Patreon program there, but you can also support me in many other ways. Consider following the podcast on Facebook or searching me out on Twitter at mtonyw. You can also give me your honest five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and or write a glowing review for me uh, and for this podcast on whatever platform you listen uh, to these episodes on. These things just help the reach of the podcast and make it more viewable to other people, and I appreciate if uh, you support me in those ways. Okay, let's get after it. Here is part one with retired detective Brad Ortenzi. My guest on this episode is retired Ephrata Police Detective Brad Ortenzi. Brad served with the Ephrata Police Department for 21 years, retiring in 2014. During that time, he worked as a patrol officer before landing in detectives and working many difficult cases, including uh, the murder of Terry and Lucy Smith, which was committed by their adopted son and an accomplice. In his detective role, he also spent time investigating crimes against children as a member of the Internet Crimes Against Children Task Forces, a couple different ones there. And in a bold leap of faith, he retired from Ephrata PD just years shy of full retirement benefits and took a position with Zoe International, where he currently remains and is the Eastern USA Regional Director. He, along with his seven teammates on the Zoe International team for Race Across America, were recent kicking up the dust in pursuit winners on this podcast. And I'm pretty excited to have him on the show uh, to tell uh, you more about his story and, and for me to hear more about his story. Brad, welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for, uh, thanks for having me. Yeah. Um, so we, we met not too long ago, and uh, I always try to pretend to be a, a good podcaster and do some snooping around to get prepped for these episodes. And in doing that, <laughs> I found out you were on a TV series. I don't think I've had a guest on yet that's been on a TV series. Uh, back in 2004 called The Investigators uh, for your involvement in a murder case. What was it like to be on a show like that? And and what was that murder case all about? Do you remember? Yeah. Um, well, you actually make it sound a lot more uh, intriguing than what it really was. But uh, yeah, so um, that case was in Ephrata, uh And it was a joint investigation between Ephrata and Ephrata Township. And it turned out not to be a murder case, but there was someone that had uh, confessed to the murder during the investigation. It was a really odd case. Uh, what had happened was uh, a, it was a double drowning, and the girl had floated down a stream, and a guy pulled her out, tried to give her CPR, and later, uh, while police were talking to him, uh, he confessed to the murder, uh, or confessed to doing some harm to her. So, um, long story short, it was a long investigation and it turned out that there was another guy that, uh, that had drowned, uh, when that had taken place and we didn't find him for a couple days. So, uh, and in the interim, um, we're trying to piece all this together. Uh, and mostly, uh, I get pulled onto this because I was actually a patrolman at the time. And one of my duties was to go to the parents' house of the boy that was missing, and it turned out that he had uh, he had drowned as well, and that was um, uh, at a house of a uh, retired state trooper. Really tough night, um, spending some time with him. We were waiting for the dogs to come. We were going uh, to do uh, send the, the scent dogs out to see if we could find him, and uh, turns out that uh, he did in fact did drown, but he did not. Uh, he was still underwater at the time. That's why uh, we didn't find him. But so when we found out that there was a company that wanted that was really interested in this story, um, 
well, let me back up. Turned out that that uh, it was found that uh, through the autopsies that you know both these both these uh, male and female had drowned. Uh, there was no harm. Um, we ended up, uh, I guess, the the effort of borough ended up uh, taking the charges away, and this guy came out of jail. But so when the company came and said, "Hey, we want to do this uh, do this film," they talked to the father, and he said, "Hey, I really want to make sure that uh, the." Brad, he had a really important role. And really, my role was to spend time with him. Right. Uh, I just happened to be a detective at the time. Uh, but I did, I did play some, some peripheral stuff. But uh, yeah, really, really fascinating case. Okay. So did you have to travel somewhere for the show? Or did they come into Ephrata and, and do everything there? Yeah, no, they came into Ephrata. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, I was trying to find actual clips of it i couldn't i couldn't find him I, it looked like i needed to like subscribe to stuff and right i like you brad but i wasn't about ready to lay money down to yeah, watch you it. didn't miss a whole lot actually <laughs> um so so this case is so so just so i'm understanding you right a a guy and a girl they both drown at the same spot but she had she had floated further down the stream or river where her body was found by this other guy who confessed the murder who actually didn't do the murder that's correct. Okay. And so when you went to the the state trooper, you said he was a retired state trooper? Yes. When you went to him to talk about his missing son, did you already had you already found her body? Right. Yeah. Okay. So mm-hmm. there was a lot of concern because you knew that he was boyfriend or somehow connected to right. this woman? Yeah. Uh, so they had they had both worked midnight shifts. So during the day they came and I guess in the morning they came, uh, they were like at a low head dam. Okay. And they took a dog with, and I, I think we think what happened was the dog went in the water, maybe got in some trouble. They tried to help the dog. They both went into the water. I think he had waders on, um, so he went down. And so um, she ended up drowning and floating downstream. This guy saw that, saw her floating, pulled her out. Um, police are called. We start. Uh, they start talking to him, and I guess he was pretty hinky. Um, and and he, he ended up confessing to doing some type of harm in the midst of this. And then he lawyered up. So now they're kind of stuck. Uh, right. So um, we couldn't identify her. So it, it ended up that um, her face was put on, the picture of her was put on the news. Do you know anybody who is, uh, does anyone know this person? And then it turned out that um, we got a call from this retired state trooper. He said, that's my, my son's girlfriend. And by the way, he's missing as well. So we had about a day where we couldn't find him. And then that's when, you know, we had the dogs uh, to from his house. And the dogs went right down to the low head dam. Okay. Uh, just and that's it turns out that's where they, they had drowned. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So when you say the dog, you you used his his dog to go back there? No. Or you... We used scent dogs. Okay. Police, police scent dogs to, to find. Oh, um, and they to, actually were able to still pick up on it? And, right. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. So... Why did this guy confess to it? Did you guys ever figure out why he would confess to doing no, harm? No. Um, he was a unique individual. Okay. Um, had some run-ins with the law prior to um, this. Uh, yeah. It, it, you know, it does, it's kind of that, that weird thing that uh, some people just like the limelight and being a part of investigation, sort of. Right. And that's kind of seemed, uh, seemed kind of what it was. Okay. He yeah. wanted to be overly helpful, so helpful he right. <laughs> implicated right. himself in a murder. Right. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's, uh, that's pretty incredible. 
Um, so did you uh, did you have to get makeup done and everything when you were on the show? Like, no, how, no. How how crazy was this? No makeup, but it was it was really odd because they um, brought a whole production team. Okay. And uh, you know, kind of kind of a setup like this, and this was you know early two thousand, so sophistication and uh, wasn't wasn't as much as what it is now. So you know, uh, remember there were planes flying overhead, so we had to time it. So I was only talking when the planes weren't flying and. <laughs> And then if a car door hat, you know, so, yeah. uh, but yeah, it was, uh, it was pretty intense. Huh. How long, how long were you recording? Like how long were they with you recording your part in it? For, I remember, and I didn't have, I only had maybe two or three speaking parts a few minutes each, but it was three hours or so. Okay. Um, they ended up, you know, how that goes. They, they, right. You talk a lot and then they cut it down to just a few minutes, right. but, uh, but it was a big deal and effort at one at the time. I remember it was all over. Um, it was on the news that this was going to, going to be happening. And, uh, yeah, so it was, right. it was pretty cool. Yeah. It's a, it's a cool thing. It's one of those things about law enforcement that I think is really neat. You get to do some really, really, really interesting things that are, are, that's just different than, um, you know, other jobs and, and other things you get to do. Right. Um, you know, I, you know, I can think back over my career and think of specific things that I did that, none of my friends got to do that just just exactly. a, it just puts yeah. you in positions where you can mm-hmm. do some really cool things so right. and that's that's one of them so so you're past uh you know a very very uh you know important award the cue the dip award you and you and your <laughs> i mean this is this is probably in your top three awards you've ever won um you and your your seven your other seven seven members of your team from Zoe International, you did the race across America, and and you guys won the eight man team uh, part of that. What what is race across America? Can you just tell tell uh, people what that is? Sure, uh, race across America is an ultra cycling race. Uh, they call it the toughest bike race in the world, and the reason for that is because once it starts, it doesn't stop. And it's a 3,000 mile uh, race. Starts in, in uh, Oceanside, California, and ends in Annapolis, Maryland. It's been going on for, I think this was the 39th year, or maybe the 39th year. Okay. And why Zoe's involved in this is because it's a platform for cyclists to raise money for their charity of choice. So just about every team, uh, every solo member is raising money for a charity while they do this. Okay. So, um, yeah, we ended up, this is the second time that we entered the team into the, to the race. And the first time you guys took second place, correct? Third, third place. Third place. Mm-hmm. Okay. So this was the second time in the race and you took first uh, this time and, and beat kind of like, I don't want to call him your arch nemesis. What was it? Team, team Oceanside? Oceanside. Yeah. Okay. And yeah. where are they, where are they from? Oceanside, California. Oh, okay. Yeah. So they're they're, they're right there. They're made up of uh, of cops and firemen. Uh, oh, okay. Yeah. And w- do you know what they were raising money for? What uh, their charity I, was? I believe they raised money for their canine unit. Okay. Uh, at least they did in 2019. I'm assuming maybe that's. I think that's what they did, but I'm not positive. Okay. And I think literally right before or just before we got on this episode. Um, I saw that you, your team won another award out of race across America for being the team that raised the most money. Am I That's correct? correct? Yeah. They call it the lawn handleman award. I think it's called. Yeah. 
Uh, so yeah, total we raised almost $380,000. That's incredible. Yeah. And how much did you raise the first year you did it? 175. Oh, wow. So you about, yeah. basically doubled it. Mm-hmm. That's incredible. So you, you, uh, you won the race. What, what, what is that experience like? What is it like? Because it took you, uh, I'm trying to remember from the, the cue, the dip segment. I know it took you six days and, and some hours. What is it like to, do you really get any sleep during this? I mean, I know you guys work in shifts. You have like, so you have an eight man team. You have four guys that are basically pull a 12 hour shift while the other four are supposed to be resting and sleeping. You had a coach bus and everything, but how much sleep are you really getting during this thing? So in the beginning, uh, my team didn't get a whole lot of sleep because we were, we were the midnight. We started at midnight and rode till noon and our sleep cycles were all jacked up. Right. Uh, and it, it just didn't work. So even though we had a nice quiet bus to sleep on, uh, it wasn't working. So the first couple nights, most of us were getting two, three hours sleep because you're so tired. You just crash just for two or three hours. But then, you know, you're awake. it's kind of like working swing shift midnights, you know, <laughs> you, you just uh, it doesn't work. So finally, the end of the race, probably the last two nights, uh, we were getting between five and six hours of sleep. We finally, okay. finally kind of cycled in right at the end. Of course. Right, right at the end. Mm-hmm. But you probably were also very tired by that. Point. We were right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, because you have the you're 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 tired so you can, you know, just rack out and go to sleep. But you're probably also like your adrenaline, everything is probably really it's, high. Yeah, it's really hard to ex- it really it's really hard to explain the whole experience because um even though it, it's a it's a it's a six-day race so there's always something that uh you're, you're concerned about and and me as the leader i'm always uh either in communication with the home office uh working some media stuff um so there's always something to do and you know we had a pretty decent lead but we were one flat tire away from from them catching Catching up up. so it was just yeah it's a it's a stressful and how many support people did you have on this 12 we had uh or was it more than that 11 i believe okay yeah right so you had support vehicles you had the Mm -hmm. coach bus that you guys could sleep on um it was quite the operation and i was telling you before we came on the episode that uh i don't know i i mean i i can get into sports i mean i'm a big football fan um you know, and I, and I can get into sports. I, I get into World Cup soccer every year and or every four years. And uh, but I was really into this. I, I mean, this wasn't on. Well, maybe it was on TV. Did they did they show it on TV anywhere? Was some TV? Uh, there's some uh, occasionally we'll go through a town. There's going to be news agencies that, that pick okay. it up. But yeah, but it wasn't on consistently no. live or anything like right. that. But on Facebook, you got your team was doing, um, you know, live uh, videos. Uh, during the race, uh, there was also a website where you could follow where you guys were. They were GPS tracking you and right. everything. And uh, yeah, those six days every day, I was checking it. And usually, I had it kind of up on on Facebook. And if you know, getting the alerts for the live streams and stuff. Mm-hmm. And I was interacting with your team and stuff. I just thought it was super cool. Um, got got my uh, you know competition juices flowing. Good. I, was, I was cheering Good. for you guys. Yeah, I thought, I thought it was really cool. Yeah, it's a it's a fun thing. You know, and it's, it's, it is competitive, but it's, it's mostly friendly competitiveness right. uh, with the other teams, uh, cause we're all doing it for charity, but, uh, 
but yeah, no, there was definite, we, we were out to win it this year by <laughs> far. We were not, uh, yeah. Yeah. And when I was reading down over the list of names on the team, uh, during the, the cue, the dip segment, I, I was like, well, I'm, I'm assuming some of those guys were related because they had the same last names only, or only two. Okay. Right. Okay. So, and then, um, being in Lancaster County, seeing some of the names, I was like, some of these guys have to be, I mean, I'm a weaver, so right. I, I can, you know, <laughs> I'm, you know, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm straight up from Mennonite, you know, background. So I'm reading something. I'm like, some of these guys have to be from Mennonite or, or even plainer background than that. And listening to some of them talk, I was like, they definitely right. have some, uh, yeah. some, some yeah. of my blood in them. So we had, uh, there was eight cyclists, uh, six were, um, former Amish. And, um, yeah, and all kidding aside, I, they seem to have uh, a pain tolerance that the rest of the world doesn't have. That's, <laughs> and it's great for a cyclist. Uh, and not only that, just, uh, yeah, just attention detail and just, man, they get after it. So, um, yeah, so six, six were, uh, were former Amish. Okay. Now, how did you put the team together? How did you find these guys? So in 2018, uh, the whole biking for Zoe thing started in 2018. My wife and I were missionaries in Thailand at the time. And we, as a missionary, you're, you're a natural fundraiser. Uh, you have to raise your, your right. salary and uh, operating expenses. So we came up with the idea of what if we did a coast-to-coast -coast bike ride from Virginia to California and we do like a cycling where we do uh, child trafficking awareness for Zoe while we do that and, and raise funds as well. So we took this idea to the founders, they approved it, and um, my wife, Lori, and I started putting it together. So we biked from Virginia to California. Uh, we did a longer route. I think it was almost 4,000 miles for that one. And then we invited riders to ride with us. And depending on how many days they rode, they would raise that amount of like certain funds for, okay. for each day. So we had 46 riders come with us that, that trip. And we raised, um, I think $285,000. Oh, wow. Um, it took us, um, I think we had about 50 riding days to go across the country. We had a couple of rest days in there as well. So okay. that's how the whole thing kind of got started. And when we did that, that's when some of these guys rode with us. Gotcha. And then we kind of got to know each other. And we even started talking about uh, the race across America, race across America during that, that trip. And then in 2019, my wife and I were returning and moving home from Thailand to the U.S. We didn't have time to put that type of a ride together. So we thought, well, what if we do RAM? Because I was very naive. I thought <laughs> the logistics are, you know, they have the route. So the logistics are pretty much taken care of. Uh, yeah. I'm not sure if that... <laughs> That borders on naive or ignorance. That was just not, uh, yeah, the, the logistics are just astronomical for this race. So, but nonetheless, that's how the whole okay. RAM thing got started. Okay. And, um, and so you do, you do the right, you, you, uh, you're planning on doing RAM every two years. So you'll, Correct. you'll skip, uh, 2022 right. and do it again in 2023. Um, and so you were not only a member of the team, but you were also the team, team leader, um, how, how did you balance the logistics of being a team member, being one of the riders, but also yeah. kind of overseeing? I'm not like, sure how well thing. I, I'm not sure how well I did with that. So yeah. And I, this would be the last year that I ride that I, okay. the, yeah. So I'll, I'll manage from now on. And you know, I'm, 
I'm older a lot. Sometimes in some ways, I'm, I'm very much older than a few of the riders. So uh, I could be the dad of a few of them. So now there's going to be a target on our back to be the team to beat since we did win this year. So we got to put a little bit of a faster team together anyway. So um, I'm barely keeping up with those guys. So it's might be it's time for me to kind of step down and get some faster guys in there. But uh, but it was a challenge kind of juggling uh, all of that at the same time. Um, but uh, yeah, it's a fascinating race. It's it's a fun race. Yeah. Uh, pretty intense. Yeah. Yeah. What's the training like leading up to it? Like how how long are you guys training leading up to the race? And what does that look like on a weekly basis? We trained, uh, and each guy was different. Uh, a lot of guys have their own personal trainers. Some of the guys are really good triathletes and have personal trainers for triathlons. Okay. So everybody had their own kind of training schedule, but we started at least six, eight months out uh, okay. before. A uh, lot of winter stuff, a lot of winter training on what we call a smart trainer, uh, hooking our bikes up to a computer uh, in our basements. And, um, and some winter riding as well. Okay. Uh, but uh, yeah. And then the closer to the uh, three months out, most of us were riding three, four, five times a week. Okay. Um, and along with keeping a, a good base, uh, because that because there's a lot of sleep deprivation, and because it's still riding twelve hours a day for six days, um, your body takes a hit. So you got to make sure you're healthy in every way, nutrition, and right. just have a, a good overall base. So yeah. Um, yeah, it was training was was pretty intense. Well, it's pretty it's uh it's pretty pretty cool. So, obviously you were you you know, you you've stated that the main reason you guys were riding and the the main reason uh all the riders ride is is to raise money uh for charities and you guys were raising money for Zoe International. Can what is Zoe International? We've we've mentioned it a lot here. I mentioned it on that episode where you guys were cue the dip winners, but but what like what is it and 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 what it what is its mission? So Zoe International is a uh, 5013C. It's a nonprofit. It's also a ministry. Uh, we focus on um, intervening uh, and helping children that are enslaved in child and child sex trafficking. Well, child trafficking in general as well. Uh, we do that by uh, three main components: uh, prevention, intervention, or rescue, and uh, aftercare. We are in five countries. Uh, Thailand, Japan, Australia, Mexico, and the U.S. And in each country, we do things differently uh, depending on what, uh, how we partner with that country. And one of Zoe's main um, interesting niches is that we, we partner very well with government, no matter where we are. So uh, in some countries, we do all three, like in Thailand. Uh, we do prevention, we do intervention and rescue, and we do aftercare as well. We have two homes, uh, one home in uh, Thailand, where I think there's approximately about 60 rescued children there um, at that home. And we also have what's called the Child Rescue Center, where we are in a number of task forces where as soon as the children are rescued, uh, police and social services deliver, deliver them right to our door. And uh, so the Child Rescue Center is like a, almost like a hospital, so okay. to speak, uh, just an immediate safe place for the kids to go um, but it doesn't look like long-term longer-term care and then we also we just opened up a home uh, actually i think we just got our first girl uh, just a couple days ago in los angeles as well so we okay. opened up a home for um, those children are 
rescued out of uh, Los Angeles. Okay. And that, um, I forget what you called it, the quick response place where people can, law enforcement or whoever can bring a child to you. Um, where's that located? That's in Thailand. That, that's mm-hmm. in Thailand. Right. Okay. And one of the homes is in Thailand as well. Yes. Correct. Yes. And then how long are the, once the children are rescued, how, how long are they in these homes? And like, what's, what, what's the end goal once they get to the home? Is it to return them to family or, or do they not have family? Is that kind of why the rescue has happened? Or is it kind of a, a whole host of different things going it's on? It's a host of different things. So children belong with their family. Correct. So no matter what um, we could offer the child, uh, the child belongs to the family. So we always try and, and return the child to the family if possible, if that's, uh, if that's feasible. Uh, if not, they're ours forever. Uh, we don't, you never age out of Zoe, uh, even though we, we specifically, um, take care of children. Uh, if you're, you get to the age of 18 and you still have anywhere to, anywhere to go, you're going to stay with us. Okay. Um, so, but there's a, there's a whole gamut of things that, that we do for the kids to include, um, psychologists and all the therapy, every type of therapy you can pretty much think of. We have for the children as well. And uh, along with education, vocation, uh, vocation classes, uh, vocation, different vocation tracks, uh, aftercare, um, and uh, we have a tra- tra- uh, transitional homes as well. Okay. So, um, yeah, the kids are, you know, for Thailand specifically, um, we have 65 to 70 rescued children and our Thai staff in Thailand is almost 100. So okay. uh, there's a lot of people taking care of, right. of those kids. Now, are any of the staff um people that you have rescued and now like work for you or no okay no i didn't know if Mm -mm. if that process ever happens Mm -mm. okay um yeah it's super super interesting uh you know the first time you know i met you and got to talk to you it's crazy that we both worked at different agencies in lancaster county we had never met each other um until i uh started this podcast and then, honestly, I don't even remember how we connected. I can't remember either. But somehow yeah. we 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 connected, mm-hmm. um, and and uh, we met, had coffee, and and you were telling me about it. And I was like, wow, this is a really cool organization. What, in your opinion, what makes? I feel like there's so many child trafficking, uh, anti-child trafficking organizations out mm-hmm. there, rescue organizations out there. What, in your opinion, is the biggest difference between Zoe and some of those other organizations? Yeah, well, and, and I think acknowledging there's a lot of organizations doing some great stuff uh, yeah. out there. Um, I think where Zoe's a little different is that we do all three components uh, to trafficking, prevention, intervention, and aftercare. And, um, and the fact that we're in different countries um, has really honed our skills and honed um, and, and our founders founded Zoe, Mike and Carol Hart, they founded Zoe in 2003. So it's been around a good many years. And there's an excellence there that uh, is very, many people, when they come on short-term mission trips to Thailand, will come away and saying like, wow, that this level of excellence from the quality of the facility that you guys provide for these children to the education, to the, to the, um, to the mental health plans that you have for the, for the kids, uh, everything's really top notch. And, and I think we've, we've started in some really challenging areas, you know, starting in Southeast Asia and getting a home and 
our operations up and running and then taking that, what we learned there and applying that to Los Angeles. And yeah. then, you know, we get to do that in each other country. So uh, we really have some skilled experts that have been having had their hands in this process from the very beginning. And, you know, it really comes down to from the top down. Um, we love kids, you know, and want them to be restored. So, uh, you know, you, you don't do this job if, you, if you're kind of into it. Right. Uh, we really have been blessed and fortunate to uh, have people come into uh, this ministry that that just love kids and, and are in for the long haul. Right. And um, yeah, one thing, you know, in talking to you about Zoe and, and being on the, the website and just learning more about it is uh, one thing that I've always appreciated about is just like there's a, a gospel a gospel part to it. Like it's not just, you know, mm. rescuing and taking care of. There's also a, you know, sharing the gospel aspect sure. to it that I mm -hmm. think is is just uh important for me personally as a Christian when I'm looking at different organizations, nonprofits and and uh and and Christian organizations. Mm -hmm. Um there's a lot of people that slap that Christian in front of their organization. Right. I'm like, well, right. what what's really Christian about it, you know? <laughs> um but uh, you know, that's one thing I've always, you know, that I've come to appreciate about Zoe as I, as I learn more about it. If I could ask you too, and I don't know how much you can get into it, but the, the aftercare part, we've talked about that. What, what are those things that you do in the prevention and intervention? Like what are sure. some of the things that you, you mm -hmm. do to try to do help with that end of it? So prevention looks different again, depending on the country. Uh, you know, we can just stay, uh, say something for uh, Thailand. Um, we have a very robust prevention program in Thailand. We have a, a, a team of uh, Thai nationals that work for Zoe that are, that's their job is prevention. I think last year, um, even with COVID, they, uh, I'm not exactly sure of this stat, but it's pretty close to 20,000 people that they've come in contact with or taught the prevention um, outreach to. So we go on outreaches to uh, different villages, um, schools, and teach the children what trafficking's like. Uh, some of these schools are pretty remote and some of these villages are pretty remote. So we go in and not only do we say, hey, this is what trafficking looks like. Uh, have you had any relatives or friends go missing? So sometimes we get tips with that. And then also, um, really what it is, is making relationship. It's, it's, you know, Southeast Asia, which everything is about relationships. So we get to make relationship uh, with uh, the schools, with the village leaders, and the people in general. And many times we'll get tips from them. Or um, if they see trafficking, they'll call us and we can send an investigation team out and, uh, and investigate it. And the intervention part, um, we do do investigations uh, in certain places. Uh, we don't really go into a ton of detail about uh, what those are, but uh, we assist police um, pretty much in every area that we're, we're located. And um, yeah, that, that looks a myriad of ways. Yeah, super, super interesting work. And, uh, you know, um, yeah, I, it's, it's, been, it's been great learning more about it and and just talking to you more about it uh, over the past several months. I kind of want to go back now, um, you know, back to uh, kind of starting at the beginning and finding out how you ended up at Zoe, because I think it's a, it's a cool story. And obviously it starts out uh, in your career in law enforcement. And I guess my one question I always like to ask people is, what was it that got you involved in law enforcement? Why did you get involved in law enforcement? Well, uh, 
I was uh, getting out of the Marine Corps. Um, I went to the Marine Corps shortly after high school and loved it. Absolutely loved it. And if there was really a struggle for me getting out after my enlistment because I knew it was not a place that I wanted to raise a family. I did not see one good example of a family of a career person. It just seemed like there was, you know, it, it's just a tough life. Right. So when I got out, um, I had taken a couple, I started college while I was in the Marine Corps and I took an intro to, to criminal justice. And, and But even before then, uh, I had some interest in being law enforcement. But quite honestly, it was the closest thing I could get to the military. Okay. I love the paramilitary, you know, so I thought, you know, paramilitary could be close. But nonetheless, you know, when I look back, man, I grew up on Adam-12 and Dragnet. I'm, I'm probably aging myself with some <laughs> of those older police cop shows. But um, that and, uh, you know, Miami Vice, um, I was all copped up that way. So. Uh, it wasn't much of a jump at all for me, uh, but that's how, um, yeah, that's how I got started. Okay. What did you do in the Marines? I was a Stinger missile operator. So it's a, okay. it's a heat-seeking uh, shoulder-fired missile that shoots down aircraft. Okay. It's as cool as it sounds. Uh, so <laughs> it, was a, it was a cool job. Did you ever get to actually do that no. in the field or you just well, were... well, we shot down uh, what's called ballistic air targets, okay. um, which is like about a 10-foot um, rocket. Uh, so, but when I was in, I was in, uh, uh, the Persian Gulf war Okay. and, uh, really what we did was we're pretty much infantry at that point. We had air superiority, so there wasn't, um, a whole lot of, uh, concern that we were, that, uh, Iraq was going to hit us with aircraft. So we were infantry just clearing bunkers. Okay. And, All right. Um, this, this question is not on the outline, but it's, uh, it's in the current events. What? I've really been bothered by the whole Afghanistan thing. Right. And, 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 uh, you know, you, you can say as much or as little as you want. I, I, I reached out to some guys, um, who, who were actually in Afghanistan, uh, and, and saw combat over there. Some guys that I know. And, uh, that whole thing, man, is just tearing me up. Mm. And, and I wasn't even in the military. Like I, I, I didn't, I didn't fight. I didn't go overseas. Um, and, uh, yeah, I just, it just blows my mind. And I just, I just, I just cannot wrap my mind around yeah. it. I can't, I can't wrap my mind around it. Um, but yeah, I didn't know, has that, has that affected you? Yeah. Uh, you well, know, being from, I'm um, being a Marine. Uh, yeah. You know, I don't even know where to begin. Um, I will say, if I could preface this by, like, I'm I'm in this stage where I had to stop watching news as much as I did, yeah. and stop, you know. So I, I I the only thing I know about Afghanistan is it's just a cluster right now. Yeah, it's just nasty, and we pulled out and left people behind and left military equipment behind, and so I'm speaking from sort of a, a an ignorant standpoint of I don't know all the details, but man, it it I don't I'm ashamed that. Yeah, I don't even know where to yeah. begin. I, I don't yeah. even have any words to think. I it's probably going to be years, and we'll probably never know the truth. But how in the world could something as sophisticated as our military um, and our leaders come up with that? Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I've told people that I'm not even. I, I I'm not even going to uh, argue or or disagree with the fact that hey, at some point we needed to, you know, pull 
pull our people out. I mean, I'll, I'll engage in, in that debate and everything, but the way it was done, uh, I'm just like, how, I mean, is it, is it incompetence or is it ignorance or is it on purpose? Like it just bothers me so much. And, and I was also, I I was thinking recently too, like if, if I was, if I was a leader, like how, if I bungled something that poorly, what, how do you regain the trust and the, um, you know, of, of your people? And, and, and really it comes down to like, you have to eat a big giant piece of humble pie and say, I messed up. Mm -hmm. Like that's where you got to start. Right. And then it was super interesting this week. I don't know if you know who Jocko Willink is. He's like this super intense seal guy. I did see that. He he cracks me up. But I watched his video where he was, he was like, you know, if I was present, this is what I would say. And, and that's exactly what he, he said. Like, this is on me. I messed up. Mm -hmm. I made a mistake, but here is what we're going to do. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, in, in super not politically correct ways, uh, basically we're, we're going to. We're going to go over there. We're going to take control of every airport. We're going to go in with mm-hmm. special response teams and take everyone out. And if anyone tries to stop us, we're just going to kill them. And uh-huh. I was like, I'm not even a Marine. I was like, I'll go. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's just, it, it, yeah, it's just a, a really sad lack of leadership. I think, I think maybe that's the one thing that, that bothers me about a lot. It's just like, just seeing such a vacuum in the high levels of leadership and watching, uh, you know, I, I, I should probably follow your lead and just not watch as much news as I do. But just seeing these press conferences with these high level leaders in the military and you're like, these guys, I don't know how they got there, but they, you know, it's, it's just super disheartening. I do not understand any of it. Right. Right. I have no idea how we got on that. Um, Oh, oh, I asked you why, why you got in law enforcement. It happened and you started on the Marines and then I, Went down my little good, rabbit trail. <laughs> yeah, good sidebar. Good sidebar. <laughs> um, so you so you get in you get into uh, to Ephrata, and you had said before we went online here that Ephrata, when you first started, was actually split up. You had Ephrata Borough, and then you had Ephrata Township. Ephrata Township, yes. And then in the middle of your career, at some point in your career, they actually merged together, just become Ephrata yes. Police Department. Right. Um, and uh, was was Ephrata, so had you been working for Ephrata Township or Ephrata I was Borough? with Ephrata Township. Okay. Yeah. And is that the area you grew up? Is that where you wanted to work or did you just start taking tests and landing yeah. where you wanted? No, I, I um, there was not, there wasn't a hiring freeze when I, when I got out, but there was not much, uh, not much hiring going on. Okay. So I put myself through the academy uh, and started college at the same time. And uh, I, not at the same time, as soon as I got out of the academy, I, I uh, started taking college courses and testing at the same time. But turns out within like a month, um, I actually got hired by Ephrata Township and Lebanon City the same, like two days apart. Okay. So I had to kind of figure it and, and Lebanon City paid a little more at the time, but Ephrata Township would allow me to work around my uh, semester that I just paid for. Oh, wow. Okay. So that was a no brainer. Yeah. That semester was just, um, I was full time at school and full time, just a new patrol officer. Uh, I cannot imagine. Oh, it was not, uh, it was not pretty. Uh, I was a mess, but yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I can't imagine. I, I, I remember how overwhelmed I was when I I was brand new. I can't imagine trying to pile school yet on Mm -hmm. top of that school semester. So props to you for that. Now you, um, how long were you on patrol then? Before you got into detectives? Uh, I think I 
Got promoted maybe about three years. Just it was pretty quick. Okay. Um, had you always wanted to do that, or did you just find yourself put in for the position? No, nah, I did. Up? I did want to become a detective, and I didn't. The, the I, I think if I could look back over my career, I would have stayed in patrol longer, just because you know you stay in the same. I was a I was detective for sixteen, seventeen, eighteen years. That's a long time to be in yeah. investigations. Yeah. You really hone a lot of great skills over those time periods, but there's also amount of burnout that comes with being in the same position for right. for pretty long. But and I didn't. I love patrol. I love the yeah. excitement of it. Um, I wasn't crazy, you know. Back then, dating myself again, uh, we had typewriters. Um, well, when did you start? So it was ninety four. Okay. Yeah. No, no computers. No, you com- using computers. Yeah, no computers. We just uh, we had jet probably the within a few weeks or months of me starting, we got rid of the typewriters and started word processors, so that we were really up and running. And <laughs> you know, after a while, we had the big bag cell phones we would carry yeah. out. Yeah, uh, yeah. So, um, but yeah, it was uh, uh, it was a good start. Um, I was never um, from Ephrata. I was from Bur- I'm from Berks County, Hamburg, okay. Shoemakersville area. Uh, and went to the Reading Police Academy and uh, just started testing all over the place uh, in the beginning. Okay. And just uh, a general sense, how, how big is Ephrata Police Department? Like, do you know how many square miles they cover or how big uh, the department is? 20-ish. Okay. So 20. It's a fairly large area. Yeah, it's a pretty big area. And um, population, geez, I want to say now between Ephrata and Ephrata Township. And now... Uh, there's a lot of other areas that they patrol as well. Okay. Up, uh, Adamstown, West Cocalico as well. So okay. um, they've grown considerably yeah. uh, since I've left. Yeah. Yeah. How many people were on the department when you were on? Close to 40. Okay. Yeah. That's a pretty decent sized department. Yeah. I didn't realize they, I don't, I don't think 30? I even realized they were 30 that some. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's one of the larger. I've repressed department. part of my <laughs> part of my police memories, but I think yeah, thirty. Yeah, I think close to forty. Okay. Sure. Yeah. yeah. All right. So you so you got you got on. Uh, you put in for detectives. You got that position. Uh, you said you were you know working there for. Uh, what did you say? Sixteen, seventeen years. You were in detectives. Eighteen years. Yeah. So. Um, yeah, I was only patrol for three years. Okay. So. Mm-hmm. And during that, during your career then as a detective, um, you said that, uh, you know, before we went online here that the, the murders of, uh, and, and I didn't, I didn't, I didn't remember this couple. I would have been on the job when this happened. Terry and Lucy Smith, uh, their murders really impacted you. What year was that? That was 2001. Okay. So that would have been, so I got hired December, 2000. I was in the academy, so it would have been right at the very beginning of my career when I was mm-hmm. completely stressed out with trying to learn the job, right? Um, and not too worried about what was going on in Ephrata. But what, uh, yeah, can you talk about that case? Were you the primary detective on that case? No, no. And again, so I, I was still with Ephrata Township at the time. Okay, but um, I had uh, I was really blessed in that being a young detective. I really had some some older detectives take me under their wing, and a lot of the Ephrata guys did that. So. Um, and I don't know how the rest of the the county works, but when there's a, we were part of all part of the major crimes task force. So, uh, really, when a when a body drops, uh, you you know you're there. Actually, I think so. I I think it was probably close to three weeks where I was with Effort of Burrow uh, working that homicide case. So, okay. But I wasn't I wasn't one of the 
I wasn't a lead detective. Got you. Got you. So you were still Ephrata Township. The murder happened in, in Ephrata Borough, Borough mm-hmm. but you were kind of like with them and helping them with the, with the case. Right. There was probably, if I remember correctly, like a handful, six, five, six, seven detectives from other jurisdictions that, that were helping with that. Were with them for for the first probably two or three weeks. Can you talk about that murder and and sure. what what that one was about? Yeah. So uh, there was a, a local group. Um, that lived in Akron at the time. And I, I think, um, again, some of the details are fuzzy, but there might've been uh, five or six, six guys. There was one, one female that was involved in well and uh, involved in that as well. And they just were on a rampage doing crime. And we didn't know about it at the time. It was just one of those things that crime was happening all over the place and, and didn't know that it was all coming from this one group. Gotcha. And, uh, Along with this crime were a lot of burglaries, a couple car um, thefts where they burned a car. There was a shooting of a, of a um, he was either, I think it was a Mennonite guy going to work and, uh, and then the homicides. And they all happened within, I want to say, three, four days uh, at okay. a time. And uh, what had happened was there was an adopted son of, uh, of the Smiths and uh, another guy by the name of Landon May. The two main guys, um, they broke into the house of, uh, of the Smiths. And uh, the, there was a little bit of estrangement with this, the adopted son. And uh, they broke in, and it was brutal. I mean, really brutal. The, um, uh, not to get too graphic, but the, um, uh, the weapons used were guns, knives, ball-peen hammers. Um, there was a sexual assault. There was tying up. There was suffocation. There was, yeah. Um, so they basically tortured them. It was a. It was part of a torture. Part of it was, I believe, um, trying to get the pin number of one of a of a uh, of a of a debit card as well. Um, but hmm. yeah, it was it was brutal. So what? Why were they doing this? Was this like uh, drug fueled? thing or you know that that was one of those really things you know it was just not a whole lot of rhyme or reason to it um and even some of the you know when you started piecing everything together it didn't really seem like the excuses they gave even really matched up uh it just kind of seemed like that kind of crowd fuel one-upsmanship type thing um and uh, a lot of them went away for a lot of a lot of years so so uh the adopted son and this this May character they were they were charged. Uh, were there other people charged in the? In yes. The crime? So there was a there was another female. Uh, I believe her name was Rodriguez. She was kind of dating um, the estranged son at the time, uh, Michael Bourgeois, and um, she was charged with uh, with conspiracy for murder as well. And then there was another. I think might have been someone else that was charged with conspiracy as well. Um, and uh, I think. She got, she has a life sentence as well. So, okay. All still uh, in prison. All still in prison. Um, Bourgeois was a, was a juvenile at the time. So I'm not really sure where he is with, um, his was a life sentence. And so was Landon May, uh, as well. Okay. And weird part about it is Landon May, um, he received the, um, the death sentence for that. And, but also his dad was on, um, death row as well, hmm. um, for a crime committed not too far from Ephrata, uh, Back in, I believe, the seventies. Okay. Yeah. And his dad was—you said his dad was on death row mm-hmm. as well, and right. then May is also on death row. Yeah. And again, I don't know. Um, 
I'm, I'm thinking his dad's might have been overturned. I'm, I okay. can't remember. I haven't really kept yeah. up. But yeah, do you ever do you ever find yourself in these cases? Because I'm sure you worked other homicides um, and and other pretty horrific cases. Do you ever go back? Uh, I've done this every once in a while. Like I'll go back and I'll look the look the guy up just mm-hmm. to make sure he's in prison. Yeah, still. Yeah. Do you do that? Every I once do. I yeah. do. Or find out, you know, because. Um, and again, I, I lived out of country for five years, so I kind of not that I'd lost touch, but I, you know, um, I guess you, you sort of do lose touch. Um, just to kind of see, because um, I know at that time um, he was sentenced. Uh, the son was sentenced as a juvenile. Uh, or he was charged as an adult, but I think there's been some overturning of that. So, um, yeah, so you just kind of, kind of dip your toe in the water. Some yeah. of it you just want to forget, but other, other parts of it, like, yeah, I'm right. just kind of curious. And what, what I do many times is driving down a jurisdiction, um, driving down my jurisdiction, or if I helped other, um, jurisdictions with a homicide, you know, like, yep, suicide there, suicide yeah. there shooting there, stabbing there. It's just kind of a weird thing. My, yeah, like my, wherever, wife, my wife tells me to shut up on many times when <laughs> I do that, but yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's true. I mean, you, I drive through the city and like almost every single block, I can remember yeah. something specific mm-hmm. happening on it. And, uh, um, yeah. And then, so then when people ask me, you know, uh, Hey, you know, where should I move in Lancaster city? I'm like, <laughs> nowhere. <laughs> Stay out. Uh, I'm the worst person. I'll, I have actually told people I'm not going to answer that question for you. Just you probably shouldn't even ask right, me. Right. Um, sometimes I'll point. I'm like, this area is pretty good. But in the back of my mind, I'm like, oh, mm. except for that thing and that <laughs> thing. Um, yeah. So what what's the pressure? Can you explain the amount of pressure or or? I don't know. I talk to guys who work homicides. I never worked a homicide. Mm-hmm. I was never in detectives. I never worked a homicide. Uh, I always felt like that would be a bit of a pressure cooker position to be in. Can you can you describe that at all? Yeah. You know, um, uh, Craig Stebbin, the, the former district attorney, would always say in trainings, there's two types of cases. There's homicides and then there's other cases. Um, yeah. Homicides just carry this. Uh, there's such an intensity about it. And and really, when it comes down to it, you want to do such a good job for the victim and their families right. that everybody brings their A game and there's never anything unturned. So like even when you look at a trial and, and from a detective's view of everything, we build cases from what it's going to be like sitting in court. Um, and that was one thing, you know, as a, as a new detective, my first trial, it's interesting how all of a sudden you're, you're an expert. Um, <laughs> on everything. Oh, right. you're, you're the lead detective. Suddenly lead detective means, uh, you should have known everything. You should have every bit of training. And, you know, so, so you build the case from looking at it, from sitting in a courtroom of what's the defense going to ask. And you don't leave anything unturned. So the amount of workload, uh, is, is, is astronomical. So, but yeah, and there's just an intensity. I, I, I took a, um, um, myself and another, um, detective took a confession from Landon May and it was, it was a really tough interview because he wasn't giving it up and, uh, he, he turned and when he started turning and I just realized like, he's going to go, uh, he's going to give it up. Uh, I just remember, um, you know, it's just kind of a mixture of making sure we get everything right, but also just this like euphoria of, 
Right. Um, because the key questions, we had kind of set everything up in the first place. Uh, he finally flipped. But um, yeah, just uh, it's, it's intense. How long was that interview with him? Uh, well, we had a sit, we had, a, we had, I think we had two interviews with him. The first one was a few hours. Uh, and then the second one, um, second was a little, sh- little shorter than that. Okay. Yeah. I, when, when I was in the city, I had so much respect for our violent crime unit guys. Mm-hmm. Uh, because like you said, they, they put so much work into these shootings and homicides and the homicides were one thing because you you had a you had a deceased victim, so you mm-hmm. you didn't have a victim who would refuse, right? Would sign off. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I re- I remember marveling. I I did one stint up in detectives for for three months because uh, I really thought I wanted to go to detectives. I was like, oh cool, I'll have this like training spot, and then the next time a position opens out, I'll put in for it. Really thought I wanted to do it. I went up there and I was like, this is not for me. Mm-hmm. And the the biggest reason was, and and I don't, you can tell me how you handle this. I I couldn't handle being in a room with someone for hours who was lying to me. Mm. Like I didn't have the patience for it. Right, right. So how did you? How did you? How did? Yeah, you you seem to have a little more of a laid back personality than me. But how do you how do you manage that in an interview room where you're talking to someone? And literally every single thing coming out of their mouth is a lie. How do you just, like, not show your aggravation? To the doom. It's time for Cue the Dip. Every week, my kicking up the dust in pursuit winner is a police officer. But this week, I'm breaking from this short tradition and giving it to those soldiers who paid the ultimate sacrifice on August 26 in Kabul, Afghanistan. This attack happened while these soldiers were in a non-combatant role and simply helping evacuate people from a mess of a situation that was made worse by the day due to terrible leadership. They were there because leadership at the highest levels, including from our president, was lacking. Bad decisions and terrible planning for sure had a role in their deaths. But they went and they served others as they took part in evacuating many out of harm's way. In some ways, we question if their sacrifices were in vain and if the sacrifices of many before them were also in vain. I imagine that each soldier's family may struggle to know if their loved one's death was in vain. But I also know that those they rescued and helped will forever remember them knowing that the giving of their lives helped save their own lives. So this week's Q the Dip winners are Marine Sergeant Johanny Rosario Picardo, 25 years of age. Marine Sergeant Nicole L. Gee, 23 years of age. Marine Staff Sergeant Darren T. Hoover, 31 years of age. Marine Corporal Hunter Lopez, 22 years of age. Marine Corporal Dagan W. Page, 23 years of age. Marine Corporal Umberto A. Sanchez, 22 years of age. Marine Lance Corporal David L. Espinoza, 20 years of age. Marine Lance Corporal Jared M. Schmitz, 20 years of age. Marine Lance Corporal Riley J. McCollum, 20 years of age. Marine Lance Corporal Dylan R. Marola, 20 years of age. 
Marine Lance Corporal Kareem M. Nikuyi, 20 years of age. Navy Corpsman Maxton W. Soviek, 22 years of age. Army Staff Sergeant Ryan C. Knaus, 23 years of age. This week's Cue the Dip winners are these 13 soldiers who paid the ultimate sacrifice, being directed by incompetent leaders at the highest levels and yet did so with honor and service to their country and to people they didn't even know. I have a lot of respect for our military. As a police officer, I worked with many veterans who served overseas and then continued to serve here as police officers stateside. A different breed of people. Ones who know what it's like to suffer. They are the ones who can be pushed but never seem to break. They work alongside officers who have never served in the military, but some of whom also understand what it means to suffer and to be pushed but to never break. Together, quietly, in their own minds, or behind closed doors with those that fellowship in their suffering, they wonder if it's worth it. If it matters. They see the constant hate, the constant questioning, the constant disrespect, the constant social media posts, the constant videos, the constant critiques, the constant misunderstanding, the constant demonizing, and the constant assigning of motives, and they wonder, am I making a difference or should I give up? It's expected from those that break the law and that embrace the criminal lifestyle, but it stings when it comes from those who supposedly are the quote-unquote good guys, the respected community leaders, those that hold clout in our culture, and those that are Christian leaders and pastors. I would say this, it does matter. My pastor has a saying that I think of often, do the next right thing. And I think about that quote a lot. And I think day in and day out, if you're an officer and you just do the next right thing, what you do does matter in that moment for that person you're helping. It may be as small as taking a minor accident report. It may be as big as saving a life or protecting others with deadly force. Whatever it is, do the next right thing and it will matter for the ones you're serving. Do the next right thing for the ones you serve and shut out all the noise. It's hard to do, maybe impossible to do in our time, but at least figure out a way to turn it down. Know that the fellowship of suffering is felt by all those who did the job ahead of you and who do the job now and who will do the job after you. For me, there is nothing like talking to another cop who has done or continues to do the job well. One who operates with a level of duty, patriotism, service, courage, and integrity that is forged and strengthened in suffering. Those are the types of officers that you don't even need to say anything around. You see something, you hear something, you talk about something, and you know. You can't explain it to anyone else as hard as you try, but when you're with that type of officer, you're known and you're seen. I love being around guys like that. There is nothing like being with guys that would take doors off hinges to help you, who have your back in the worst situations, and who have seen the things you both wish you could forget. In your gut, you know it matters, so keep doing it. It also helps me personally to know that not only do I have a level of fellowship of suffering with fellow officers, 
but I have a Savior who took on far more suffering than I will ever imagine. I count it gain to serve a Savior who suffered on my behalf, and I count any suffering on this earth as nothing compared to what has been given to me through faith in Christ. This truth is laid out in Philippians 3, 7-11. But whatever things were gained to me, these things I have counted as loss because of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them mere rubbish so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, if somehow I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. I enjoy the fellowship forged in hardship with my fellow officers. I enjoy the fellowship with my Savior forged through his suffering. He kicked up the dust in pursuit of you and me. How much more should I kick up the dust in pursuit? Whatever you do, kick up the dust in pursuit every day. It does matter.